Welcome to the LeanZone.com podcast, where we discuss construction contracts, liens, and bonds. And now, our host, Alex Barthet. Today, we're going to answer the questions, who is an employee, who is a contractor, and go over some human resource fundamentals. Let's get started. It's important to understand what is an employee uh, or who is an employee and who is an independent contractor. Um, so the main reason, obviously, is as an employer, you pay taxes in addition to the salary of the employee. As an independent contractor, they pay those taxes, or they're supposed to. Um, Social Security, Medicare, unemployment um, are the big ones. So how do you tell if you have an employee or you have an independent contractor? Because what we see, particularly in construction, is as a means to avoid, let me say it this way, as a means to become more competitive in their pricing, uh, some companies decide to make what are, in fact, employees independent contractors. So let's go through the test. There's lots of different tests out there. Different courts use different tests. The IRS has a test. Other government agencies have a test. But we're going to talk about the IRS test, which I would tell you, in my opinion, is the most comprehensive. It's got a total of 20 factors um, that the IRS will look at. And all of those factors would, you know, in any of the tests, you will find these factors. So if you look at, at this test, it's definitely the most comprehensive. You need to have some understanding though that the failure to classify uh, an employee properly as an employee or an independent contractor can result in fines and jail time, just like not having documents. Um, the maximum civil penalty associated with uh, misclassification can be up to 41.5% of the uh, wage. So if you think about it, you've hired someone for three years, you paid them $50,000. The fine alone on that person could be $62,000. Uh, so classification is very important. There's been an uptick in government scrutiny on this, particularly in construction, because it's it seems to be going hand in hand with cash payments, check cashing stores, and unlicensed contracting activity. Um, so all of those things are coming together, and this is one component of it. Oh, lastly, uh, another important penalty. You as a business owner, um, and even if you're not a business owner, but you are in charge of this component of the business, you could be personally liable for these civil penalties if you fail to ensure that the workers are classified appropriately. So let's go through the tests so you have an understanding. So as I said, there's 20 factors. We're going to go over the first four and then the last 16. Um, this is the way the IRS breaks them up generally. So the first four are indications that you probably have an independent contractor. So number one, that this person could suffer a, a profit or a loss based on this work, not just related to the wage. So as you know, when you undertake a, uh, a contract in your business, uh, one of the risks you have is not getting paid. but you could actually lose even more money than that if things don't go well. So that independence is, is one of the tests that the IRS will look at. Um, the investment in tools uh, and equipment. 
are you providing everything to this person or do they have their own tools and making their own investments in their equipment the more likely they are to have their own equipment the more likely they are an independent contractor do they work for other people other than you so if you have an a worker that only works for you as an independent contractor there's an there's a strong likelihood that that person is actually an employee and not an independent contractor and relatedly do they hold themselves out to the public offering the service obviously an independent contractor may work for you may have an ad on the internet may pass out business cards at a networking event the more they look like an independent the more they are an independent what we see sometimes are companies that use they have independent contractors but in essence that independent contractor has worked for this company and that's all they do all the time more likely than not that's probably an employee as far as the IRS is concerned all right so let's go briefly through the next 16 and I would tell you that you could categorize most of these under the rubric of control how much control do you have over this person and then what the IRS does is they slice up that control into a whole bunch of different issues so again if you answer yes to any of these and the more likely you answer you the more that you answer yes to the more likely this person is an employee so let's go through it instructions do you exert control over how the employee this worker does that their job function do you train them to perform this job function in a specific way is the workers job function important critical to the success of the project or the the company such that they cannot delegate that work to somebody else if they can't then again it's an indication that this person is is an important employee and just can't be replaced very easily who hires the assistance for this worker so you know in many instances again back if we look at construction there's a worker and that worker may have a helper an independent contractor would hire their own helper if if the if you're hiring the independent contractors helpers that's an indication that that person is an employee how long is this relationship been going on is this an independent contractor is this worker had a long long-term relationship with you such that they're not really working for anybody else who sets the hours for the independent contractor if they do they're probably an independent contractor if you do they're more likely an employee how much time do they work again full-time 40 plus hours is an indication they're an employee versus less than that they may be an independent contractor where it is the work done construction obviously it's probably happening at the construction site but in other fields if the work has to be done in your facility there's an Indian there's a strong indication that that person is more likely an employee than an independent contractor 
if you have the right to determine how the work gets done and the sequence that it happens, again, that's an indication that you have control over this person, this worker, and they're more likely to be an employee. Um, does the worker have to report to you about their actions when they decide to take breaks, um, how they're doing what they're doing? Again, that's something that an employee would likely do, not an independent contractor. Uh, how is the person paid? You know, normally, an independent contractor is paid by the job uh, versus by the hour. Uh, that's not always the case. Uh, you know, you can pay an independent contractor, a, a real independent contractor, by the hour. Um, but again, how the pay, how payments are made, is an indication on whether someone is an employee or an independent contractor. Um, who pays the expenses of the employee? Again, it's less likely that you would pay a true independent contractor their expenses. That would normally be wrapped up in the total fee. Uh, again, we talked about tools and materials, who owns them. Can you fire the independent contractor uh, at will? Uh, normally, if you fired, uh, if the, the independent contractor left, they would technically be breaching their contract because their contract would likely include something bigger than just working by the hour. If so, uh, then they're likely an independent contractor. Um, so. The classification, as you could tell, it, it's a lot of different factors, but you put them all together, these last set, and it's really who has control over the worker's environment. And to the extent that you are controlling it, they're an employee um, more so than they are an independent contractor. Um, and while you may see some savings initially by having independent contractors, there is, I would tell you, a significant risk in misclassifying uh, your workers as independent contractors uh, because there's many departments in the government where that misclassification will cause you lots of problems. Work comp, the taxes for withholding. This episode is brought to you by the Construction Lawyers Alliance, a network of the top construction lawyers from around the country. At constructionlawyersalliance.com, you can search construction law topics in nearly every state. Visit constructionlawyersalliance.com to find the construction law answers you are looking for and a seasoned construction lawyer that can assist you. Um, easy to tell when you have a legitimate independent contractor versus a legitimate employee because a true independent contractor is going to set themselves up as a business. Um, they'll be licensed, insured, uh, but where you see the problem, where we see the problem is where uh, employers are looking to save money and pass costs that they would have to incur onto the employee uh, by making them an independent contractor because the savings are significant. You know, you may have a benefits program in your company that you would not share with an independent contractor. So aside from all the taxes, now you may not offer health insurance uh, or, you know, any kind of profit sharing uh, because they're independent contractor. All right, so let's talk about the payroll laws. Um, and we're going to talk generally about the Fair Labor Standards Act. That's the federal law. Uh, that governs how employees are to be paid. 
So let me start by saying that the federal minimum wage is $7.25. Florida has a higher wage of $8.05. Uh, a work week is 40 hours, uh, and you can, you're allowed as an employer to take deductions for um, tools, uh, expenses, shortages, so long as the minimum wage doesn't fall below, I guess in Florida, $8.05. Um, so the big issue that we hear about all the time is overtime, because that's the, the big issue. Everyone knows that you gotta pay $8.05. Um, where the problem occurs is how do you pay and when to pay overtime. So let's go through this so you understand that a work week is 40 hours uh, of work. Any time over 40 hours in a work week needs to, that extra time needs to be paid at time and a half. Um, you cannot, and the employee cannot waive the right to recover overtime in advance. So if you have a policy that says no one's allowed to work overtime, you put it in your handbook, uh, and if you want to work overtime, you have to get prior approval. That by itself does not prevent you from being sued by someone for what they claim to be overtime pay. Okay? It's good to have in your handbook. It's good to have that procedure. But that by itself, you should not perceive that to be a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, so... You also can't pay a fixed fee for uh, varying amounts of overtime. So a good example would be, I'm going to pay you uh, $100 to work on Saturday. Right? They may work one hour. They may work 10 hours. Um, you still have to do. You still have to pay them by the hour. So uh, you can't just lump it together. The big issue is you as the employer are obligated to make sure that your employees uh, are keeping track of the time that they spend working and that you pay them based on that formula. So even if the amount that you're paying them is in excess of what would be time and a half, you just, you just can't give them a lump sum. You have to track it by the hour. Uh, there's no such thing as a salary for a work week exceeding 40 hours. Again, these are non-exempt employees, and we're going to talk about who's exempt and who isn't. But you cannot say, I need you to work 45 hours a week, and I will pay you $500. Uh, or let's make the math easy, $450. That doesn't work, because you're asking someone to work more than 40 hours. So what you would have to do is you would take that 45, divide it by the pay, and then any hours over the 40, would have to be paid time and a half. So in most of your scenarios, the only people that would really be exempt are managers and executives. I mean, there's lots of other classifications of exempt employees um, based on what I would call lobbyists that have lobbied the government to create all these little exemptions here and there. Um, but it's, it's, for the most part, it's professionals, executives, and management. Um, and I'm going to oversimplify, 
but the true test of whether a manager is or isn't exempt is typically their right to hire and fire. Um, that that's, it seems to be the linchpin of the analysis. Uh, there are other factors that could go into it, but if you have a manager that you pay a salary to so that you don't pay them overtime and they are effectively a glorified assistant, um, they don't have the right to hire and fire, um, they are probably much more likely than not they are not exempt and they are entitled to overtime pay. So technically while you call it a salary, what you have done is you've just said 40 hours times a certain rate equals X and I'm going to pay you that. While that's not illegal per se, the reality is what you should be doing is saying I am paying you by the hour and you're supposed to track the hours because that gets into the reporting and record keeping um, that you as an employer are supposed to do for your employees. Um, and uh, so the first thing is you, you should have certain fair labor standards and minimum wage as well as work comp notices in your, typically in your break room for the employees to see. You have to have that posted. You can get those forms from the Department of Labor. You can go right onto their website and get them. Um, other information you're supposed to keep uh, for all workers, Social Security information, um, address including their zip code, birth date, uh, if they're younger than 19, but most employers will typically get a birth date anyways, uh, their sex and their occupation, time of day, uh, time and day of the week when the employer's, the employee's work week begins, hours worked each day, uh, the basis on which the employee was paid, X number of hours times X um, dollars an hour. You are allowed to pay a flat fee for the week, again, but you just have to make sure that if they work over that, they get overtime. Uh, you are allowed to pay by the piece so long as the piece calculation when compiled with the hour compilation does not fall below the minimum wage including overtime. So uh, the math gets a little complicated but the best way to think about it is this. If you pay by the piece and you have a really slow employee, um, their net effective hourly wage is going to be higher than a um, when you pay by the piece and you have a fast employee. So you could pay one employee by the piece $500 um, and it takes them 40 hours. You cannot pay uh, another employee by the piece uh, $500 and it takes them 80 hours because you owe them overtime. You actually have to pay them more so as long as all those calculations work out. So it t it's typical in many industries, particularly construction, uh, you know, masons, drywall contractors. You pay them by the, like a mason, you know, you, you can pay them by the block, you can pay them by the sheet of drywall that they hang. Designate how much they get paid by the hour. Uh, total 
by the day in the weekly straight time earnings, however much time in overtime they get. Uh, any deductions you've taken from the wage, you have to keep track of that. Um, and the date that the payment is made and the pay period covered by the payment. Most of the information that I've just told you is typically found in an employee file plus the information you would normally need in order to create a pay, a pay stub um, and, and a payment, the minimum wage. What I'm going to talk to you about generally is uh, a combination of legal issues and best practices. Um, so uh, unless you have an employment agreement, okay, Florida is an at-will state, um, which means generally you are able to fire someone for because you have a reason or because you don't have a reason. Where people get into trouble is that they mistake at will for what could be considered discriminatory. There are reasons that you cannot fire someone and technically you cannot reject hiring somebody. Um, so the main ones are uh, termination based on race, color, gender, pregnancy, national origin, religion, disability, age, marital status, AIDS or HIV, and in Florida, sexual orientation. None of those reasons can be the basis of terminating an employee. Now, that doesn't mean that if someone uh, has a specific religion, is of a certain sexual orientation, that you can't fire them. But what becomes most important is the documentation you have ideally these four steps that Marvelin went through, so that if an issue were to occur, you can show consistent business practices in your employee discipline and a good reason for having terminated the employee. Again, remembering that technically you don't need it, but if a claim is made, the idea of just saying, well, I fired them because we didn't need them, I didn't want them um, anymore, I don't like them. <laughs> that is a legally permissible reason to fire someone. It is difficult to support that reason if the person that has been terminated falls into one of the protected classes. So firing a white male for any reason is much easier than a black pregnant woman you can't, but you, you, you need to have the support to be able to, to do it. Um, so if you have an employment agreement, which can be in writing, it can be verbal to the extent you have maybe sent emails uh, that could look like an employment agreement or a promise to keep someone employed. You have to be careful about sending those emails. You're great. I'm going to keep you here forever. Uh, those emails could be dangerous, um, so you don't want to say that in an email. Uh, so uh, to the extent you have an employment agreement, the termination usually is going to be for cause, but again, you have to look at the agreement as, as for how and why you can terminate someone that, that has a, a, an employment agreement with you. Um, document 
the issues in the employee file. Ideally, the documentation exists in advance of the day you fired them. Um, that always looks a little suspicious, right? All of a sudden, 10 things show up in the file and then they're terminated that afternoon. So to the extent you think, we're probably gonna be terminating this person, you need to stop and think, is there something that has happened that you could put in the file? Maybe print out some emails of issues that have happened and then start documenting it. Um, legally, you're better off maybe keeping them around for another couple of weeks, maybe a month, knowing that they're gonna screw something up that you can use to document the file and then use that as the basis of a termination rather than pulling the trigger when you don't have all the documents you need. Have a witness with you. You should, to the extent you can, you should have someone with you um, during the termination process. Uh, deliver the news professionally, stick to the facts, um, and uh, most employees are gonna have some need to express their dissatisfaction, to vent a little bit. It's probably a good idea to let them do that a little bit um, rather than keep it bottled up as they leave. Um, make sure you obtain all company property that so they have a uniform, tools, a computer, a phone, um, a truck, all of that stuff you need to make sure that you get a hold of. Keys, access cards, access cards to your place, access cards to the projects they were working on. Um, passwords are a big deal now. Um, so you need to make sure that to the extent they have access to your information technology resources that they are immediately cut off um, so, uh, so that you can cut them off. If that's the decision you make, you know, you may say, I'm not worried. Uh, they can stay for another two weeks and wrap up what they're working on. Obviously, you're not going to cut them off at the moment. Um, if you have a, an agreement in place, maybe they signed a non-compete when you hired them, uh, you should reinforce their obligations at the time of termination so that they don't forget. I would not recommend giving them a copy of the agreement because they should have, you should have given them the agreement um, when they signed it. Uh, but again, remind them of their obligations uh, of non-disclosure, of a non-compete. Um, you can also consider uh, for, again, different circumstances, you may want to have them sign a separation agreement. Um, typically that requires the exchange of money, so you may agree to pay them, okay, I'll pay you two weeks, uh, you know, I'll give you $5,000 for, uh, for the separation agreement, which probably may include a release, it may include other things. At that point, if those are things that are important, you probably have a lawyer involved to make sure that it gets done correctly. Um, usually lower uh, tier employees, that's not much of an issue. Uh, it's as you get into the upper tier employees that you may want a separation agreement. Um, and, uh, you know, and the most important thing is to just try to stay strong because it's not comfortable for anybody terminating somebody. And while I suggested one witness at a minimum, maybe you want more people. Um, so 
a couple of resources that I would recommend to you, uh, generally on HR issues. There are two that, that we use a lot uh, for job posting. Uh, we've had great success with a, a service called Indeed. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I-N-D-E-E-D.com. It's kind of like uh, a reverse auction for your job postings. Um, we've had great success at our firm. Uh, I've recommended it to people. They've been very happy finding good people for relatively uh, a little bit amount of money. Um, effectively, what you do is you post your ad and you pay, you agree how much you're willing to pay when for someone to click on your job posting. So it kind of turns the, the, the job posting around. So you pay, so I mean, we've hired employees for $30, um, which is really inexpensive. Um, the other thing is a, a website called Manager Tools. Com. I think if you Google it, a place where you can get lots of information on many of the things we talked about. Next week, we're going to discuss construction contracting and liens. Until next time, I'm Alex Barthet. Thanks for listening to the LeanZone.com podcast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or in your favorite podcast app. For articles, videos, and forms on this and other construction topics, head over to the LeanZone.com.